Welcome to Account Trends, everybody. I'm Jason Stein with Intuit Accountants. My co-host, David Bergstein, and I are excited to be with you every couple of weeks to share the latest news, interesting perspectives, and hottest trends in the tax and accounting world. We'll have special guests on the show to help break these trends down and give you food for thought as you find new ways to deliver for your clients. But most importantly, we plan on having some fun while doing it. Welcome. Welcome back to Account Trends. David Bergstein here. Jason Stein is out in the field at AICPA Engage. And today we have some of the top insights that we garnered from our first season. Give us your feedback. What do you think we should present in the future? What do you see happening in the accounting profession? Again, we're looking at the top insights that we garnered in our first season. Let's take it away. I was going to ask, do you, do you think that the trend will change, that people, the overall concept is most people will work in a hybrid environment, and if they force people back to work, they'll have that great resignation? Great question, Dave. Um, I think some have learned already the hard way. Uh, you know, the, the second part of this discussion on talent has to be the, the amount of rating that is going on today. I mean, it's staggering uh, talking to firms in what I'll say are maybe smaller markets uh, where bigger markets, not necessarily big firms. I'm seeing small firms in big markets. Um, You know, I'll give the one that I heard most recently, uh, a small firm in L.A. reaching out to someone sitting in Ohio, in Cincinnati and saying, hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, what do you make for your, as a tax manager, I make 90,000. Okay. That's too bad. Cause if you were in LA, that same position pays 130, but it's a different market. What's happening with remote? Well, you know what? I like to grind. <laughs> I, I like to bill. I, I, I'm happy being at home. I'm very efficient. I don't have the commute. I don't have the, the chaos. Um, if you just fed me work, I could give you eight billable hours a day. Wow. Uh, well, what are, what are your employers saying? They're saying, you know what? They'd like us back at work. They just think that that's where the action is and they want us in the office. Hmm. Tell you what, we believe in remote workforce. You're making 90000 where you're at. If you were in L.A., we'd pay you 130 for that same position. What do you say we pay you 130 and you join us and become a remote worker. And what does the person say? Okay, is this a prank call? Like, <laughs> nobody gives away free money. Right. Uh, tell me you're kidding. No, this is real. Here, you can call this number. This is legit. And invariably, the person leaves. Now, the firm that lost that talent might say the following. You know what? They're just chasing price. Uh, someone else is going to offer 20 grand more and they're going to go there. And someone will also tell me, hey, they did that deal. And 20 days later, they called us back and said, I want to come home. Um, It's not what I thought I signed up for. So everybody's got to spin. We're all learning a new thing. But make no mistake about it, a big part of the workforce going forward, not for all, but for most, will be a hybrid method with remote being a big part of it. You know, people are struggling with staffing. So again, we talk about this the, this great resignation, or really, you know, this staffing 
challenge that we've been having for years. It's just been exacerbated. Um, so the big question is, you know, what do you do about that? And, you know, what I'm focused on right now is uh, talking to firms about how do you automate everything that you can automate. So if, if staffing is a challenge and it's going to continue to be a challenge, I, I truly believe that's true. Um, because I mean, who wants a job where you get to work 80 hours a week and you know they have these massive deadlines and accounting firm owners aren't seeming to change their business models? I mean, I, I, a lot of people don't want to sign up for that gig, right? And so staffing is going to be a challenge for firm owners. So they're, they're one, going to have to really rethink their business models, right? Because without staff, it's, it's a challenge. But even with diminished staff, automate everything you can possibly automate. And then, again, reevaluate your business model. So you have to be actively thinking right now about what you want your business to look like. You have to be reinventing right now. That, that's my take. You know, uh, Jason, I had a call this morning about the great resignation. Every single phone call I'm having with up and coming leaders, existing leaders, um, is about the challenge with, with the team, with recruiting, <clears throat> with retention, with staff. And it is real and it is probably the worst I've seen it in the, my 20 years of being work, you know, working in the profession. Um, I think that there are several factors influencing it. Um, and I believe that the pandemic has created an extra layer of stress in individuals. So you think about just across industries, we're hearing about a lack of engagement, a lack of engagement, no matter if you're in healthcare or if you're um, in the restaurant industry, you name it. The reason for lack of engagement is because of fear and burnout. So people typically have three fundamental needs and they are, they want to feel safe. They want to have autonomy and they want to be part of a community. And the pandemic, outside of the accounting profession and the, str the struggles and stresses we have, the pandemic has stressed all three areas. So people don't feel safe. They've known someone affected by the pandemic. Obviously, the autonomy, um, there's been a lot of you know, stay-at-home orders and things like that that are different, right or wrong, um, that people, people are affected by that. And we've never had anything like that before. Um, and then the third thing is lack of community, where we haven't been around our friends and family. We haven't been in the office. So Beyond the accounting space, understand that most people have been impacted by these things and there's a lot of stress and a lot of burnout. Now, in our profession, layer that with fewer people um, entering the workforce, wanting to go into public accounting for whatever reason, layer that with deadlines that have been pushed for a couple of years where you um, are really exaggerating the burnout. Um, and you've got, you've got, a bit of a problem because people are moving from the profession into industry. I had a call last week. I promise you somebody mentioned that they had somebody move and go into um, law enforcement. People are going into teaching lots of different areas. So I think what, what we're dealing with is again, not just a struggle, but an opportunity for us to maybe innovate, as you mentioned, Jason, and reimagine what our employees look like, how our teams work together. Can you help bring those worlds together of how we get past this thinking of the, how we've done the compliance work and, and measuring billable hours towards this value pricing and how it plays a role in, in 
bigger, broader set of services? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, Jason, because I think to, to a large extent, if you're out there hourly billing the compliance work, that's actually going to be a hindrance when you start to move into advisory because hourly billing puts a premium on activity. It doesn't put a premium on profitability. It puts a premium on activity, filling up hours. And, and you know, I've never met a, a customer I didn't like. I never met a billable hour I didn't like. And what happens is all of this technology that we are, you know, have available now to us allows us to do more work in less time. Well, what do you do with those time savings? Well, I'll tell you what a lot of firms are doing. Unfortunately, they're going finding more compliance work. They probably shouldn't be doing in the first place. They're not taking that capacity and moving into advisory with it. And that I see is a is a big issue. We haven't uh, moved to advisory. And we've been talking about moving to advisory since the late 80s. Yeah, CPA did a whole project on this. There's been other outfits talking about it. I've heard it my whole career since I started public accounting in 84 that we need to do more advisory. But we're not doing it because I think a lot of firms value volume over value. So, Jody, tell us more about why are these factors playing a role in your firm's success in the bottom line? Like, you're, like the dress code is a, is a good example. That's a very intentional decision that you made. What about has to do with driving your success? Because it's so contrary to the, the mindset that, that has been in our profession for so long. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny because from the very beginning, we wanted to dress differently because when I worked at manufacturing company who brought auditors on, we always call them the suits and we always flip the coin on who was going to take the suits out for dinner and stuff like that. And I was like, but so when I started this firm, I'm like, well, I don't want to be a suit. I want to be different. I want to be them part of the, part of that team. And uh, so I thought, you know, with our, with our client base, you know, being between like, like a million, the, the top 10, 30 million, you know, we don't have any clients that are the wall street type where we actually have to wear a suit and tie or expected to wear a suit and tie. You know, they don't, our, our clients don't expect us to be on a zoom call with a suit and tie. They want us to be like them. You know, because a lot of them maybe never went to college. You know, they they're running a business successful, and they're 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 just an entrepreneur. And uh, with that, we want to be like them. And so, you know, the, the the visual thing is a big part of it, but also the way that we talk to the clients is also a big part of it. We don't talk accounting to them. You know, we don't bore them with gap. They don't know what gap means. You know, we don't know we know what gap means, but they don't care about that. You know, they want to know how many widgets or how many trucks or how many haircuts or whatever that might be. They need to do in order to hit the, the end goals. And so when we're forecasting with a client, you know, we never say, yeah, you need to increase your you know, sales by 10, 15%. Here's what your end result's going to be. We always talk about, hey, this is how many haircuts you need to do each day or you need to pick it up or here's how many trucks you need to run through the shop or here's how many hours that your team needs to bill you know, or, or whatever that might be so that they can actually control it. ground on what this is. I, I feel like I know very little about this whole concept of what cryptocurrency even is. Could you give us the, the Cliff Notes version of what is what is this? Absolutely. And probably the best way to try to summarize what crypto is, is to first sort of uh, outline the fact that, 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 the, that, that the word cryptocurrency is a broad term, right? That it covers 10,000 coins, tokens, assets out, right? And to really hone in on the idea, right? The best example of a cryptocurrency 
was built to be is Bitcoin, right? It's the biggest, baddest one out there. Uh, everyone knows about it, but it was basically built to be a private form, a alternative form of uh, of payments banking to basically allow institutions and individuals to conduct transactions on a peer-to-peer basis without having to use a bank, a PayPal, or any other third party in there to help them process transactions. Now, it hasn't quite gone that way, right? Because Bitcoin, it's the biggest, baddest one out there. But there are all kinds of now privately issued coins and and tokens governed by individual companies out there. Tether, Paxos, who issue coins backed by underlying assets. And so it really de- de- depends on what type of crypto you are trying to understand. But at, at the very, very uh, base level, crypto was built to be used as an alternate way for individuals and institutions to conduct transactions. So what is the biggest risk involved in this whole space? Uh, what, what I would say there is that there are two, I would say, big risks out there. One is that the introduction of a government-backed crypto, a CBDC, central bank digital currency, has the uh, possibility to really uh, upset the apple cart in terms of if we have a crypto dollar out there that businesses and individuals can use, and it's easy, convenient, and it's treated as currency for income tax purposes, that could ultimately take quite a bit of capital away from all of these other privately issued uh, stablecoins who are trying to sort of get there right now, right? So the introduction of that. And then two, the I would say the more obvious risk is that the compliance and uh, regulation, both here in the US and internationally, really does hammer down. Now, I would not say that that they are going to make crypto obsolete because it's a $2 trillion industry, but they could make it so structured and impose um, so much compliance on the area that it really does drive the entrepreneurs and the capital out of the US and into other areas of the world, right? Because blockchain and crypto are not are not linked to NYC, but they aren't linked to uh, Wall Street or anywhere else. So it's a global business. And I think that's something that, as we're arguing here in the US, right, uh, uh, down in uh, Washington, uh, in the Congress at the White House, I think having that in mind, that blockchain and crypto are the future uh, pipes for how transactions are going to happen. And so it's really, really critical that as you try to make policies that are popular now that are consistent with the policymakers' personal beliefs on these issues, that we don't undermine the the future uh, innovation and the future creativity that is going to be ultimately, I think, needed to keep the uh, uh, U.S. dollar up at the top tier of being a global uh, reserve asset. Absolutely. And that's one of the most powerful things with in pricing is give people choice. Uh, and 
what if you only give one solution, if you sell a bookkeeping service, let's say it's bookkeeping, then they'll either buy it yes or no. And and whatever price you choose, it's the wrong price. Because when you tell them the price for your bookkeeping service, it's either too high or too low. If it's too low, they don't buy from you. If it's too high, they do buy, but they would have paid you more money. And so you have to give them some choices. And the starting point of that is, I call it menu pricing, but it's essentially, if you like, the bronze, silver, gold. With every offering you have, whether it's bookkeeping, tax returns, cash flow forecasting, you offer a bronze, silver, gold. Because if you only have one choice, you're leaving money on the table. Some clients will willingly, happily pay more money when there's a more valuable option and when they understand that value. Because we know statistically businesses fail within the first couple of years. And so I know compliance is like one of the major reasons that they fail. So because I do have an accounting degree and a tax background, I knew that the area of my practice that I really wanted to focus on was that compliance piece. And so what I do is look at that client and take them on a journey um, from just getting the basic information through a consultation to then wanting to do some things themselves until they're comfortable and can afford to pay for an accountant, a bookkeeper. So like I have an online course that will teach them some of those things that they need to be looking out for. And then for them to finally step up to a formal bookkeeping system where I I may train them or, or even set the accounting system up for them. And then we go into full time. I need to hire the accountant bookkeeper to get this off my plate because I really don't like doing it. Uh, and now I can afford you. So I kind of looked at all of the pieces of that journey and built either a service or some type of do-it-yourself platform to be able to allow those clients to benefit um, and, and grow their businesses along that journey. Okay, let's let's do some speed dating. How do you educate them on? Let's just pick two of our topics, employee retention credit or a work opportunity credit. How do you educate them to let them know they have that possibility? Yep. Well, David, I'm going to switch it on you because R&D, I'm going to go with that one first because that is my that's my biggest passion is R&D tax credits. Other than the last year and a half, ERC has been my entire life. So let's concentrate on those two. I'll start my presentation with, okay, R&D tax credit. What is this? Well, first, you should be thinking of clients that are in the manufacturing setting, software development setting, in the architecture, engineering space. Those are your four major clients. So if you have any clients in those four areas, you want to think about them. But you're going to see R&D tax credits in places you don't expect to find them, usually based around software. And an example I'll give is a, uh, this is a personal thing to me. I'm part owner of a craft beer bar in Chicago, which is also a liquor store. We, during the pandemic, we've always had an online store. During the pandemic, it became this robust online store where we're doing shipping across the country, local pickups. And we were always doing shipping across the country, but basically big, robust online store now. And so we had to develop software to make the POS or to allow the POS system to talk to the inventory system, to talk to the accounting system, to talk to FedEx, talk to the shipping system, talk to the online big commerce system. All these had to communicate to make this seamless. And that that involved software development. 
And so now a bar is taking an R&D tax credit, which you never would have thought about before. And so that's what I'm saying. So I try to educate you on who the main ones are, and then don't stop there. Different conversations that we've had together is you brought brought this concept of the terror wall and the failure trench. And I thought that was really powerful. Could you share that with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I would be happy to. And I just want to make sure I give credit where it's due. I picked this up from the John Maxwell organization. I'm part of the John Maxwell team. So that's where they introduced it to me. But um, the the concept, and, and, and it, it's an extension or drill down from what we talked about in the last episode of the identity crisis. Um, so we're going deeper into what creates that identity crisis beyond just the professional. We talked in the last episode about the professional identity. Now, this is the systemic problem within all of human psychology, and it's called the terror wall. It could be about anything in your personal life or anything in your professional life. And the idea is that life teaches us lessons that sometimes are untrue. Um, and life is a great teacher in that it's an effective, it's an effective teacher, but it's not always a great teacher. And it's not always an accurate teacher. And so what happens throughout all of life is we develop a belief system. Now, I'm not talking about a religious established belief system or a spiritual established belief system uh, or even a political established belief system like, um, you know, like a utopian concept. Those are put through the pressure of generations of the human experience. And they, if you pick the typical ones that have survived that pressure process have a healthy impact on you. What I'm talking about is your individual belief system, which is manufactured in your mind out of your own life experiences. And it is often a liar. So the belief system that we inherit from the schoolmaster of life, that very effective teacher, is a mixture of truth and lie. And the, there's no way to unravel the yarn. It's no way to just go into your entire past through psychoanalysis and dissect the truth for the lie, the truth, the lie. Therapists do do that, but they do it at more of a survival level in order to get you past some big psychological hurdle, usually a chronic depression or suicidal tendencies or something like that. And what I'm talking about is a normally healthy mind that's constrained by lie. And going in and trying to unravel that won't make it work. What you have to do is listen to someone who sees in you a potential, a reality, a truth that you can't see in yourself. Now, my own uh, professional example of this is the person who heads up our coaching program. Her name is Patricia Hendricks. Now, Woodard Institute has emerged as one of, and I'm saying this to her credit, not my own, one of the premier coaching arms of United States accountants in, in, in the country. It's one of the most highly respected, one of the most effective. And it didn't exist seven years ago. But I knew Patricia. I knew she was a, she had her own practice. She built it from the ground up. It was multi-practitioner. It was automated when automated wasn't cool. It was cloud before cloud was cool. And I knew she knew exactly how to build the ideal practice. And I was able to convince her because I saw a passion in her to share that knowledge with other people. But what she could not see in herself was that she could actually coach 
CPAs or people with bigger practices than hers or who had a higher brand than hers. She she had this terror wall that said that comes with the imposter syndrome that came with a whole slate of lies that life had taught her that that I can't do that. But I knew her well enough that I saw an ability in her she couldn't see in herself. I was then in the in this paradigm, I was her mentor at that moment. Doesn't make me better than or less than. It just means that it's a situational thing. I mentored the truth into her situation. And I threw her into the deep water and watched, you know, not to let her drown, knowing that she'd be fine. It was absolutely terrifying for her. That's why it's called the terror wall. Um, and the only way she could have ever done it is she kept looking at me going, I think you're nuts. She actually said this. I think you're nuts. I think you're going to fail. I think you've assigned the wrong person. You need to get me out of here because I'm going to ruin your entire vision. I heard it all. And she's given me permission to share this story. She shared it herself. But I saw something she couldn't see in herself. Mm-hmm. And now she has built. I don't even I don't even design the courses. I don't even run the thing. She gives me a, a weekly update. She has built and she maintains and she designs and she expands one of the best coaching programs in the entire world. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your uh, listening to our podcast every uh, time we're on. Please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcast. And we'd greatly appreciate a review if you'd like to. We'd like to see a couple of five-star reviews if possible. But again, follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And once again, for Jason Stein, this is Dave Bergstein signing off. Thanks for listening. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star review. If you want to learn more about any of the topics discussed on the show, visit intuitaccountants.com forward slash podcast. Account Trends is produced and edited by Luke Johnston. Copyright Intuit 2022.